Well, good morning once again. We are going to be diving into the second part of our sermon series. Last week, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep. The lost sheep. And we walked away from our time with that parable, seeing that God loves those who are lost and don't know how to get back to him. They don't know how to find their way back home. And we also saw that God desires that no one should perish. That is his wish. That is his hope. And we talked about the necessity of creating a safe environment and church for those who are doubting, those who are seeking. We mustn't punish them for having honest thoughts, honest doubts, honest questions, right? As Pastor Ellie had mentioned in, in that quote that we, we need to be able to come to God with our honest feelings and hopefully we can create a place where we can come to each other in that same way. We mustn't give up on those who may have along the way gotten lost. Today, we'll be focusing on the parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost coin. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> I can always count on you for those amens. So if, if you want to follow along, we're still going to be in the same chapter we were last week, Luke 15. And Jesus, he had just been addressing the Pharisees and the scribes, and they had become grumbling, right? That he would associate with sinners. Why would he do this? And why would he do it so often? They were angry that Jesus didn't separate himself from them, and they came out with this verbiage, this man receives sinners. And eats with them. You know, I, for one, am grateful that he receives sinners. Otherwise, I would be hopelessly lost. The religious leaders, they just didn't get it. They, they struggled. They wrestled with it. They couldn't see what Jesus was doing because they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. They couldn't see the light of the world. They had no clue about why Jesus came because they were still in utter darkness. They believed their salvation was based on the fact that they were from Abraham's seed. In other words, they believed that salvation was by race and not by grace. They knew the law. They had it memorized, but they didn't know God. They looked at the letter and found the rules to obey without seeing the heart of love. They ventured into the world in their Sabbath best. Shirt starched as stiffly as possible, Bible in hand, a fake smile ready to produce. But their hearts were far from God because their hearts trusted in their good deeds instead of God's perfect grace. Their mind was too occupied 
with their obedience to see their need. They were too full of themselves to see how needy they were of Christ. They were lost and needed to be found, but they didn't know it. And so Jesus essentially is asking them a simple question. How far does God's grace go? How far does God's grace go? How far does it stretch? How deep does it plunge to the worst sinner, to the deepest depravity, to the best Pharisee, to the smartest scribe? Notice that the Pharisees here, they did not complain that Jesus is teaching sinners, right? That wasn't their issue since the Pharisees thought themselves to be the righteous teachers of the law and all others to be wicked. They could not condemn his preaching or teaching to sinners. But they thought it was inconsistent with the dignity of someone so knowledgeable in the scriptures to eat with sinners. You can teach them. You can pontificate towards them. But don't sit down with them. Don't spend time with them. The presupposition behind the statement that the Pharisees made, this man welcomes sinners, is the exact thing that Jesus addresses in the three parables in Luke 15. Could Jesus be emphasizing the importance of relationships? In my better moments, I I want to value what God values. I want to be concerned with what God is concerned with. So let's, let's look at this parable and see just what it is that God values. Luke 15, 8, or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now, do you remember last week how we talked about the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have struggled with um, connecting to the protagonist of his parable. You know, in their minds, shepherds were of an unclean profession. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees believed. And now Jesus presents another parable once again, and the main protagonist is a poor woman. This is once again someone that the scribes and the Pharisees would not have been comfortable relating to. The Siddur, uh, it's a Jewish prayer book, and it contains a set order of daily prayers. One particular prayer, which the Jews in Jesus' day would have been familiar with, it goes like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Can you believe that? This was prayed in a synagogue. This was prayed in homes. For centuries, women, even within religious communities, I'd be willing to say especially in religious communities, 
We're seen as second-class citizens and even property. What message was Jesus trying to send by making the protagonist of this parable a woman? I believe his reason was twofold. Twofold. First, he was trying to make it clear to the religious leaders in his day that he did not support their low views of women. That's the first part. Second, he was speaking to the women. He was speaking to you, ladies. Just as he spoke to those who may have been working in an unclean profession with the parable of the lost sheep, letting them know that there was room at the table for them. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, their struggle was the fact that he ate with sinners. So verse eight, once again, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Let's take a moment and talk about these silver coins. The drachma, as the Greek calls the coin, corresponded to the Latin denarius and was worth about 17 cents, 17 cents been talking a lot about cents, right? These, these coins, these things that we, we view as not being worth too much. And so once again, this woman, uh, having only 10 of these coins, evidently was poor. But there could have also been sentimental value tied to the coins. The 10 silver coins spoken about in this parable are most likely the woman's dowry worn as an ornament. The only money that she brings into the marriage that is technically hers. Even if the marriage was dissolved, that dowry would still be protected. The 10 silver coins, this dowry, it was protected by the society. Even with their low view of women, they still protected this. The law said that a creditor could not come and take a woman's dowry to pay for anything, even a household debt. But if you think about the emotional value, the emotional value of the coin, it was a part of her life. She'd worn it for years. She had to have that coin. No other coin could take the place of that coin that was lost. And I think this explains her frantic search. New Testament scholar Joel B. Green gives a bit of a different perspective. He notes that the woman was described as a poor peasant. And the 10 silver coins corresponding to 10 days wages likely represent the family savings. So both, both theories here may be true. And either one explains the urgency this woman has in searching for this one lost coin and eventually the extent of her joy when she finds that missing coin. The coin is lost in the house. And since the coin isn't alive, it is not aware that it is lost. It is not aware that it is lost. This coin is not lost because it's considered to have no value. It's lost because it was badly handled. 
unconsciously or carelessly misplaced. The coin represents those who are lost in their trespasses and sins, but have no true understanding of their condition. They are estranged from God, but they don't even know it. Even in a good environment, a person can be lost. How did the coin get lost? It wasn't its fault, right? It was because of the carelessness of another. And even though the coin is amongst the dirt, Amongst the dust of the floor, it is still considered valuable. Valuable. Its surroundings and its coverings do nothing to change its worth. How does the woman go about searching for the coin? The IVP Bible background commentary of the New Testament, it has this to say. The lamp here is a small handheld oil lamp which emits light, little light, but is more helpful than the small, if any, window that may be in her wall. The rough stone floors of poor homes had many crevices between the stone, into which coins and fragments of pottery fell, so often that archaeologists can now use coins in those crevices to date when people lived in these homes. By sweeping with a broom, she might hope to hear the coin rattle against the floor. Ancient Middle Eastern homes often had no windows. And if they did, it would have been a very small window. Because of this, it would have been pretty dark in the house at all times, even during the day. Thus, the woman needed to light a lamp. Once the lamp was lit, she could see that her floor needed to be swept. It needed to be cleaned up. And now she was in a position to search. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, this is where I'm, I'm going to veer off track just, just slightly here. Because before I started preparing this sermon, I wondered how in the world am I going to preach an entire sermon off of this itty-bitty parable that only has three short verses in it. After doing my research, though, which included reading the parable in multiple translations, reading dozens of commentaries on the parable, listening to a couple sermons, and reading a few opinion pieces online, I found myself realizing that I could preach about this parable for three weeks straight and not cover everything that is there, not cover all of the many meanings. (laughs) You know, sometimes sermon prep makes me feel like a mama bird, I spend time throughout the week gathering commentaries, opinions, listening to other sermons, praying, etc. And then I, I, I think on it, I reflect on it, I pray on it, and I digest the material to then regurgitate it for you all. But just the important parts, right? I'm giving you all the, the high notes. 
But there's so much there. There's a lot there. And not just in this story, in every Bible story. And while I don't want to spend too much time here, I I do want to point out one possible interpretation. The most clear interpretation is that the woman in this parable is God, a symbol of God. But depending on how far you want to go with symbolism, this woman could also be a representation of the church. Right? There are many places throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, where the church is symbolized as a woman. The church has lost one of its coins, a.k.a. a person, a living soul, a human being. The church then uses a lamp, which once again is a symbol. Psalm 119.105, it shows us that the lamp is a symbol of the word of God. When the church uses the word of God, it can then see all the the dirt and the dust that is all over the floor. It can see the true condition of the house. It can realize that it has its own problems and it must clean them up before finding the lost one. And this understanding, it can give us solutions and wisdom to deal with the problems not just a brush it under the rug or ignore them. You know, sometimes we, the church, we chase people away. Sometimes we do that. We make careless decisions. We say rude things. We let self get in the way. We judge too harshly. We speak too often and listen too little. I could go on and on. Sometimes when people leave, We blame them for leaving when sometimes we should take some of the blame. We're not perfect, right? I mean, this it it should be expected, but it it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it good. So I, I just want, I want all of us to mull this possible interpretation, mull this idea around in our heads throughout this week. But I want to get back to the most obvious interpretation. The woman searching for the lost coin is a representation of God, of God. In the illustration, the sinner is likened to a valuable coin, which has been lost. And the woman doesn't have a lax attitude with gaining that possession back. No, first she lights a lamp, necessarily expending oil Right? It wasn't as easy for her just to flip on a light switch. She had to pour the oil into the lamp and burn the oil. And oil, it's not cheap, right? It's still not cheap. I, mean, I guess it depends on what oil you're talking about. Next, instead of just glancing here and there, she uses a broom to sweep the house so that she can reach the places that might otherwise be inaccessible to her. Above all, she searches carefully, carefully. No hint of indifference, only diligence. This coin was valuable. She must find this coin at all costs, at all costs. 
Jesus wanted the religious leaders to understand how he felt about those who were lost. When we are lost sinners, we are not just out there somewhere away from God, forgotten by him. God longed for us so much that he ultimately took action, came close to us into this world and died as a sacrificial lamb. Don't ever think that you have no value because God sees so much value in you that he was willing to give up his life to win you back, to buy you back. God longed for us so much. He would go through any means, any expense to bring us, to bring lost sinners to himself. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way, The truth here taught is just this, that mercy stretches forth her hand to misery, that grace receives men as sinners, that it deals with demerit, unworthiness, and worthlessness, that those who think themselves righteous are not the objects of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, and the undeserving are the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, that salvation is not of merit, but of grace. That's all of us here. That's all of us. Ain't none of us worthy. But that's the power of grace. That's the power of God's love. Who who would spend so much time on one sheep, one sheep out of a hundred, Who would spend so much time on one coin, one coin out of 10? It it seems a little excessive, doesn't it? But that's the key. God's love is like that. Excessive, extravagant, lavish. That's the kind of God that we serve. And essentially, Jesus is taking the the unloving, the self-righteous to task in these parables. And he's showing us what his his half-brother James would show a little bit later. James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a little parable. It's, It's little, it's teeny. But Jesus is making a big point. He associates with all kinds of people because God values them and they belong to him. That's the big point. They are not just lost sinners. They are his lost possession. And each one means a great deal to him. I want to love what God loves. I want to have a heart for what is on God's heart. God loves men and women deeply, the kinds of people that some others just don't care about at all. That truth must change my attitude towards the temptation to judge them. The people I despise, the people I don't like, this parable needs to go to the heart, needs to bring us to the point where we look in that mirror and are honest with ourselves because this is God being honest with us. 
So this parable, it continues. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I lost. Like the parable of the 10 virgins, this is a parable about women, which immediately follows and makes the same point as the preceding parable that we looked at last week about men, right? In the Greek language, it is clear that the friends and neighbors that she calls are also female. One scholar suggests that the invitation to the friends and neighbors may reflect a celebratory meal, which recalls the meal that Jesus himself was accused of sharing with sinners. Jesus never stops challenging the scribes and the Pharisees. And if we keep reading and allowing God to speak to us through the Bible, he never stops challenging us either. He wraps up this parable by saying, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner by thus reaffirming the heavenly joy, Jesus sought to lead the Pharisees and the scribes out of their cold-blooded murmuring. All three parables in Luke 15 talk about the restoration of broken or lost relationships. Ultimately, God seeking out human beings who were lost to him and bringing them back into a loving relationship with him. That is certainly the point here. And all of us must realize our need to be found. But we should also recognize that God desires us to be like him and seeing the importance of relationships with other people and striving to reconcile and restore fellowship with them. Easier said than done, right? (laughs) It takes a humbleness. It takes a coming together. and, And usually it's both parties need to do this. Even though God has... Nine of the 10 coins, he wants them all. This parable calls us to take better care of our relationships and to build new ones on the foundation of love. How many relationships, dear friends, have you wrecked in the past? Don't hold up any fingers, please. (laughs) How many relationships have you wrecked in the past? How many of them have you tried to mend? Would you be willing to do so if God asked you to? Amen. Amen. It also encourages us in God's singular devotion to caring for mankind enough to go searching for the lost. It's not, oh, they'll find their way back eventually. He made an effort to go searching. Dear friends, are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to be concerned with the things that God is concerned with? Are you willing to love what God loves? Are you willing to search for 
what or who God searches for and celebrates when what was once lost is then found. God is calling us to do something. It's good for us to gather together and to reflect and to think and be challenged on these things, but are we willing to put it into action? I didn't have this in my notes, but I'm going to ask this anyways. I feel compelled to do it. I I, want to give you some homework. I know it's been a little bit of time since I've given you some homework. But I want you to honestly reflect, think about if there is anybody who is not in your life that used to be, and you can see that you were part of the reason why they aren't there anymore. I want you to think about that person this week. Maybe write their name down somewhere. And pray about that person. Pray for that person but also pray for yourself, that you would be willing to extend the proverbial olive branch to make things right, to own up to your own faults, regardless of whether they respond in a positive manner or not. Are you willing to do what Jesus is calling you to do? We've all been through a really rough year and a half going on two years, right? And it seems like people, us, we're more on edge than ever before. We're more easily offended than ever before. We're taking more hardline stances than ever before. And those types of things can destroy relationships. With uh, There's something obviously that God highly values. And it's okay to be honest about that. It happens to all of us. I'm not going to say any, any, any name, but there is a person in this room who last year, that person and myself, we bumped heads a lot, and we weren't talking to each other, but it took a humbleness from both of us to get together to talk it out, and now we can talk every week, and I appreciate that. And I imagine there is somebody out there who would appreciate hearing from you, dear friends. So think of that person, write that name down, pray about that person and for that person, and pray that God would convict you to reach out to them in whatever way he leads you to do. That is your homework for this week. But for now, I'm going to invite Ellie Castignon to come forward, to stand at the foot of the steps. He's our elder in charge for today. And after the benediction, those of you who wish to be dismissed can be so. But if there's anybody here that has a a specific burden, a special need, you want to talk about it, we'd love to talk with you. I'll be waiting down here. Ellie will be waiting over there. We'd love to listen, to hear you, and then to lift that petition up to the throne of God. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for for the the, the Holy Spirit leading the Bible writers to not just listen to to write this down so that we, 2,000 years later, can hear these words. 
But Lord, we don't just want to hear these words, we want to apply these words. May we take better care in the relationships in our lives. And may we realize that sometimes we as the church, when people leave, we've got to do some work to win them back. It's not all on them. Sometimes it's on us as well. May we be willing to light the proverbial lamp, to allow your word to speak to us, to to show us the dirt, to show us the dust, to show us the deep cracks that people can fall into that we can ask your Holy Spirit to be that broom, to clean things up, and we can rejoice when we come back together in your name. Lord, as we reflect upon maybe some of the mistakes, some of the errors that we have made in our lives, may we allow you to come in and do the necessary work on our hearts. Lord, I pray that this week relationships would be mended in your name. Lord, give us the faith, give us the courage and the strength to move forward into whatever you call us into this week. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And amen.